Coming up this evening on NTD Business. President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping talk for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine. We have the details. Home sales down in February. Will they keep dropping? We ask an agent. And one international agency with how you can help cut global oil demand. You'll want to hear what they're suggesting. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here, live from New York City. The war continues inside Ukraine, and it continues outside, as the U.S. and its allies look to fight Russia economically. The House of Representatives has voted to end normal trade relations with Russia and neighboring Belarus. Removing the two countries' most favored nation trade status means they'll no longer enjoy preferential tariff treatment. This will further isolate them from the global trading system. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said the bill would also make it even easier to impose further sanctions on Russian officials. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has made an emotional plea to Congress for more support. Eight Republicans voted against Thursday's bill. They say part of it gives too much power to the U.S. president. The bill can be considered symbolic anyway. The U.S. already banned Russian energy products last week, which make up the bulk of American imports from Russia. The bill will now go through the Senate, where the, where the majority leader says it will pass easily. When the invasion first began, the U.S. froze Russia's U.S. dollar assets, like the government might freeze money in your bank account. Many saw it as a way to cut off financing for Russia's war. Others worried what it meant for the U.S. dollar standing as the world's reserve currency. Are U.S. treasuries really the world's safest asset if the U.S. can just freeze them at will? On Thursday, in a tweet posted by the Russian embassy in the U.K., Putin said, the freeze means the U.S. and E.U. have, quote, defaulted their obligations to Russia. He also says, quote, now everybody knows that financial reserves can simply be stolen. The move to freeze Russian foreign reserves, including in dollars, has sparked a debate about what this means for the dollar's dominance in the world. Could it mean big changes for the global monetary order? China's central bank has not sanctioned Russia's assets and has called the U.S. sanctions illegal. Now China is reportedly talking to Saudi Arabia about buying oil with Chinese yuan to sidestep the dollar. And the American president, Joe Biden, spoke today with Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping. The U.S. requested the meeting with Ukraine-Russia, the centerpiece. This was the, f- the two leaders' first call since the invasion started. Anthony's Don Ma brings us more. In the call, Biden cautioned that there will be ramifications if China provides material support to Russia. A political analyst says the call amounts to a direct warning from the U.S. to China. Biden was essentially warning uh, Xi Jinping directly that if Xi Jinping were to support Putin in a more substantial manner, that there would be consequences. Those consequences were fairly unspecified, but I think we can expect secondary economic sanctions on China. Beijing says that in the call, she told Biden that the war should end as soon as possible and that the Ukraine crisis is not something that China wants to see. She added that the U.S. and China should shoulder international responsibilities and work for world peace. But Core believes Xi's words may not be all that truthful. I don't think... Xi Jinping is sincere in wanting an end to the war. He's speaking through state media rather than directly to the world public 
um, he's saying platitudes basically when what we really need is a straight up denunciation of Putin and his bloody invasion. Frank Gaffney of the Center for Security Policy also agrees that Xi's words may not be sincere, adding that trying to get Xi to distance himself from Putin could be futile. China, that they want to be seen as responsible partners and, you know, working to end this strife and advance world peace and all that. This is a lie. What communist China is interested in doing is dominating the Eurasian landmass. And their partnership with Putin to that end is absolutely of paramount importance. The phone call between Biden and Xi was around two hours long. It's yet to be seen whether the call will lead to significant progress in the Ukraine conflict. Don Mott, NTD News. And after some morning blues, Wall Street turned things round today to end in the green. Three major indexes closed higher. In fact, all three major indexes finished their best week since 2020. I thought Fed rate hikes were supposed to be bad for markets. The Dow rose 274 points, eight-tenths of a percent. The S&P 500 gained 51 points, one and two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq, the big winner again today, gained 279 points, more than two percent. And joining us to discuss the American economy and where we may be headed is Jim Uriel, Managing Director of TJM Institutional Services. Jim, you've graced us with your presence and on your Friday evening, no less. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Paul. You should have brought the beers. <laughs> How do you know I don't have them? <laughs> <laughs> Bet you do. Jim, let's talk food and drink. You own a great restaurant up there in Illinois, Brands of Palatine. Last time, you told us you couldn't find workers. This week... To fight inflation, the Federal Reserve said it's going to raise interest rates to slow the economy. You may not need so many workers anymore. That's what I took away from the conference. Is that going to solve your problems? Well, our problems now are more about the inflation that we've seen in our supplies. And I had no idea buying the restaurant nine years ago that it would be such a broad representation of different input prices for business because it's not just food that we buy you know it's energy sure. and labor it's a lot of different things so we estimate that our costs in the last year and a half have gone up 18 to 20 percent and we've only raised our prices um eight to nine percent our decision at this point was to go with lower profit margins to stay and keep because people like like you said the wages are not keeping up with inflation and if we start raising prices where people can't afford it, then everyone's going to lose. And we are seeing a lot of restaurants go out of business. Um, as far as you mentioned, the stock market, too. I think we're expecting a 25-point rate hike. I think that there's a, a saying in the trading world that's buy the rumor, sell the fact. And what that means is that going up into an event like this, the positions are put on in anticipation, which you said, like the stock market's supposed to go lower. And then all of a sudden, when it doesn't, we squeeze it all higher when everyone heads for the exits. But it's a, it's a bit of a scary time as far as small businesses go, particularly in states like Illinois, where not only in the same 14-month period where all our supply costs have gone up 18 to 20%, they've raised minimum wage twice. Just before COVID, they, in Illinois, they raised taxes on small businesses. And in, our, in the restaurant industry, almost 30%. So there is a lot a lot of bad cards being dealt to small businesses right now, Paul. Are you confident that the rate hikes can take some of this pricing pressure away, Jim, or is it going to hurt you on the other end? Well, yeah, I, I actually think that the, uh, that 
I've never thought inflation was transitory over the last year and a half. I thought that was all a bunch of nonsense. This is now the first time I'm starting to see a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. This has just come with me in the last couple of days. Because one thing that we're forgetting is that the rise in crude oil prices is actually a rate hike in itself. It is a tightening. It is pulling money out of the consumer's pocket and slowing down what they thought was too hot an economy. So remember, you know, another thing that uh, the, one of the best cures for rising prices is rising prices, provided that they don't do a bunch of stuff to try to artificially uh, push wages up to follow them, prices should kind of burn themselves out to a certain degree. I'm not 100% confident of this theory, but I'm starting to be hopeful. Last time you, your peers in the restaurant business as well were really feeling the, the kind of worker shortage at the time. You mentioned now you're, you're afraid some more are going to go out of business. How's the general feeling? Oh, the, the feeling in the restaurant business in a state like Illinois, which is all I can really speak to, is awful. Uh, people are coming out, but... It's, we're having a difficult time servicing them. There's still people who won't get off the sidelines and come to work. You know, the statistics on workers that, that fell out of the workforce over the last two years is pretty staggering. And I think the service industry feels that hard. And then on the, on the other punches that the government continues to get us, and I, I, we scratch our heads and wonder, because it, it definitely seems like there's some sort of war on small business going on in states like this. And nobody really understands why, unless the answer is that in it's easier to control it's easier to bully large corporations big chain restaurants and, and they're the only ones who will, will be able to weather the storm because they'll have pricing power that small mom and pops will not you ever considered taking off your restaurant hat and just leaving on the trader hat all day no i, I love the restaurant's one of my favorite businesses too and we have our restaurant brands it, you know it was wildly successful before we bought it they just were having a difficult time with some bad decisions that were having it circle the drain. So we have a great clientele and people, people are lining out the door and it is, I, I it's the favorite business I've ever been. People pay me and pat me on the back and say, thank you as they walk out. I love it. But the trading, I'm never going to give up trading either. So my life is wonderful right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we can leave it there for a Friday evening, Jim. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it there. Jim Urio, TJM Institutional Services. Appreciate it. Have a good one, Jim, as always. You too, Paul. Thanks. Talk soon. Existing home sales in the U.S. plunged in February as rising mortgage rates, a shortage of houses priced out first-time buyers. In fact, the National Association of Realtors reports that existing home sales fell 7.2%. The 30-year fixed rate did approach a three-year high of 4.16% last week. More expensive mortgages for you. That's the first time rates rose above 4% since the middle of 2019. And with the Fed raising its benchmark rate to try cool surging inflation, mortgage rates are set to rise even more. At the same time, no housing inventory is lacking, not many houses on the market. That's pushing up prices. The median price for an existing home rose 15% from a year ago in February to over $357,000. And there is one expert who thinks the numbers won't stay low. Evelyn Lee spoke to a real estate agent who forecasts good things for the real estate market this year. I'm now speaking to Ken Pozek, CEO of the Pozek Group. That's a real estate firm in Orlando. Welcome on the show, Ken. Thanks so much for having me. Demand trend for vacation homes also not doing so well. It really surged during the pandemic, but now it's dropped to a two-year low. Ken, why the turnaround? 
I think a big part of it is that if you look at overall inventory, it's still significantly down compared to what it was. My team and I, we see sort of like the increase of demand is still there, but there's not enough housing to keep up. And so when you look at the overall numbers are down, but average price is up, I think the demand is still there if we could create some sort of inventory. It's been up and down, I understand, the last two years' demand, but uh, demand has been climbing back up before falling again this year. So do I understand you correctly that this time around you also see going back up again? I do, yeah. If you look even just year to date and how that correlates to the past couple years, we've had about 18% more homes sell in the vacation short-term rental market here locally year over year. And so I think that if we were able to have more homes be built or more people would be willing to sell, that you'd see those numbers start trickling back upward. And since we're talking about vacation homes, we definitely want to talk about the Sunshine State as well. Um, yeah. So how's things going there? Any stats you can share? Yeah, you look, there's a ton of people still moving to Central Florida and Florida overall. There's over a thousand people that relocate to Florida every single day. And so there's a lot of people that want to live here. Now, those demographics are shifting for different reasons. You have some people that thought they could work virtually now having to go back home. And then you have other people that internationally couldn't buy and then now are coming here. And so while some people are moving away, selling, you've got a whole other market now opening back up that really want to buy something here in the Sunshine State. You just mentioned something that I also want to touch on, um, international demand, because last year, 50% of buyers in Miami were foreigners. Um, do you think they will come back into the market soon? I do. I mean, so as of November, a lot of them started, you know, were able to. But even over the past two months, my team and I, we've helped over a dozen people internationally purchase here locally. And you have a lot of folks looking from the UK, Canada, really everywhere that are looking to Central Florida and Florida in general. And mortgage rates are climbing up, though. How do you see that play out on the market? You know, I think a lot of them internationally and really people looking to buy vacation homes, there are a lot of them putting down a lot of cash. The stock market was incredible and has been incredible, but it's seen some sort of ups and downs. So we're getting a lot of calls where people are taking some money off the table from the stock market and putting it into real estate. So while I think internationally interest rates not as affected domestically we're going to see some of that demand slow down as interest rates start to climb which i think is the idea they're trying to figure out a way to sort of quell some of that demand here locally i think you know our traditional market over the spring and summertime is usually when it's really hot uh, and so i i do think that we're going to have a lot of people looking to relocate you couple that with the international market and just sort of the pent-up demand that we already have and i think we're going to have a really strong year for 2022. Thanks for giving us an insight. Ken Pozek, the Pozek Group, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Evelyn. And the International Energy Agency today urged countries to cut oil demand. It says if people around the world follow this 10-point plan, we could quickly use much less oil, as much as 2.7 million barrels a day. It is only about one-seventh of daily oil consumption in America alone, but anyway... The world is seeing an oil supply shock after Russia invaded Ukraine and the West imposed serious sanctions against it, including boycotting its oil, thus reducing global oil supply. So what's in the IEA's plan? For one thing, it wants people to drive less and use more public transit. That includes working from home up to three days a week where possible, car-free Sundays, making public transport easier and encouraging people to walk or cycle. 
It also encourages people to buy more electric vehicles and avoid business air travel if there's an alternative, like video conferencing. Some tips for the weekend. And amid this oil supply shock, the Iran nuclear deal could be coming back. The deal aims to prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons in return for sanctions relief. Iran has the fourth largest oil reserves in the world. So what would happen to oil prices if the deal came back? Anthony's Colin Fredrickson reports. The Iran nuclear deal could potentially make a comeback. Formerly called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the deal took effect near the end of the Obama era. Because of this deal, Iran will not produce the highly enriched uranium and weapons-grade plutonium that form the raw materials necessary for a nuclear bomb. But was ripped apart by President Trump. This was a horrible, one-sided deal that should have never, ever been made. Trump said Iran did not stop its nuclear program as it promised. The deal was about reducing Iran's uranium stockpile, limiting uranium enrichment for 15 years, centrifuge reduction, external inspections, and sanctions relief. The U.S., U.K., Russia, the EU, Germany, France, and China were all involved. While Biden wants to revive the deal, Russia could potentially stop it. Almost all of Russia's power when it comes to this Iran nuclear deal stems from the fact that it's right now one of Iran's only real lifelines in terms of entering global markets. And so if it upsets Russia and it doesn't have a deal with the West, it becomes almost entirely isolated. Whereas if it does get that deal with the West, it'll lose Russia, but it'll open up dozens of more markets. Nicholas Creel is a business law professor at Georgia College and State University. Creel believes Russia doesn't want the deal to go through. Iran has the fourth largest oil reserve in the world and the second largest natural gas reserves, a lot which it can't sell because of sanctions. If we do see this deal get reconstituted, there's going to be a few things that probably happen. One, first and foremost, relief to us all is we'll probably see oil prices start to go down rather significantly as a lot more oil gets back on those global markets. Another thing we're probably going to see is a further collapse of the Russian economy. Without their oil now being as necessary to global markets, we can really start to enforce some of those bans we've only been lightheartedly putting into place now on their, their last lifeline. And so that could really be the final nail in the, in the Putin yeah, coffin. The deal is extremely controversial, with the split generally between Republicans and Democrats. Creel believes it's the best out of all the bad options. Anything that can go ahead and at the very least slow, if not outright perhaps even prevent them going nuclear, is better off than just doing absolutely nothing. Not everyone agrees. They have lied over and over again about their nuclear program, saying it was for civil purposes. Uh, the Israelis stole their policy papers and their background papers and proved that they were trying to develop a nuclear arsenal. Alan Dershowitz is the host of The Der Show. Dershowitz says many are opposed to lifting sanctions and giving Iran lots of financial resources. Kate Campbell is the principal at Blue Glacier Security and Intelligence and a former U.S. military intelligence officer with five years of Iran experience. Campbell believes the deal was imperfect but good and that it's very difficult to completely prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. You really need a full-scale invasion like, you know, what happened with Iraq, um, right, to... to to round up every scientist, every hard drive, every, every file drawer. Experts believe the deal could go through, but even if it does, it may not last very long if Republicans control Congress after the midterms. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Quick break, but still to come, stay with us. 
Businesses here in America who are associated with Russia are feeling the impact of the war. We have one story from a New York restaurant. And luxury car maker Porsche is going greener. It's planning a hybrid version of one of its iconic sports cars. That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. Luxury car maker Porsche is announcing more electric vehicles in the coming years. It's also planning a hybrid version of its most famous sports car. Anthony's Phil Zoe has more from Hell's Kitchen in New York. Porsche is planning to roll out a hybrid version of its iconic 911 sports car. It's also expecting over half of its sales to be all electric cars by 2025. The company's first electric car, the Porsche Taycan, outsold the iconic 911. The Taycan is popular because it's new and it's hard to get. I spoke to Lauren Fix, also known as the car coach. She owns four Porsche cars herself. Right now, with a lot of the components coming out of the Ukraine and Russia, you're going to see a shortage of these vehicles, which means dealers are charging a premium if you can find any of them. The company is planning two more electric vehicles, including the Macan SUV, along with the 718 sports car in the next couple of years. The company's sales increased by around 650% last year to $37 billion. Porsche reported a record $6 billion in operating profit last year, which is up 27% from the year before. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. Some bad news from Volkswagen, though. It's recalling nearly a quarter million SUVs in the U.S. and Canada because faulty wiring harnesses can apply the brakes unexpectedly, sometimes while you're in traffic. Associated Press reports that dozens of drivers have complained that warning lights and alarms would go off, the driver's side windows would roll down, and the SUVs would suddenly break while in traffic. The recall covers certain Atlas SUVs from the 2019 through 2023 model years, as well as the 2020 through 2023 Atlas Cross Sport. Volkswagen said the electric contacts and the wiring harnesses in the front doors can corrode, interrupting electrical connections. Problem can cause the side airbags to deploy late in a crash, and the parking brake can come on unexpectedly. Carmaker says owners who have concerns should contact VW Customer Care. And on the day Russia invaded Ukraine, the Russian Samovar restaurant in New York City put a Ukrainian flag on the front door and a sign that said, Stand with Ukraine, no war. Still, Russia's actions are affecting her business. Jason Albano reports. Vlada von Schatz is the co-owner of the Russian Samovar, a restaurant in Manhattan's theater district serving a blini, chicken Kiev, and flights of infused vodkas. But she has found that a war, an ocean away, is now threatening her business. Some people, outraged over the Russian invasion of Ukraine, are taking their anger out on her Russian restaurant. But the family behind the business straddles both sides in the conflict and opposes the fighting. 
My husband is Ukrainian. My children are half Ukrainian, half Russian. How do you explain that? Two brother nations at war. And we have family in Russia. I have relatives in St. Petersburg. My husband has relatives in Odessa, which is now preparing to be invaded. Russia is a terror state! Anti-Russian sentiment in the U.S. has meant that this eatery, established in 1986 by people who fled the Soviet Union, is now tarred by association. From day one of the war, we have put the sign up, we stand with Ukraine, no war, and we have a Ukrainian flag on our door. Well, that didn't, apparently that didn't send the message clear enough to the people that are still blaming us for the, for the war. Now we, we're called fascists and Nazis on the phone. Um, we have hate emails. Where our sign was kicked in. The reservations, the worst part, uh, business dropped about 60%. The restaurant was already struggling following closures and gathering restrictions. Von Schatz says she and her business are against the invasion and support Ukrainian independence. And she said that as patrons learned the restaurant was being targeted, many decided to show their support. I'm getting good emails. My Facebook is flooded with support messages. and We feel the love, but still the business is down. And still we worry about our people that are stuck in Ukraine. And still we worry and we have to nurture through our staff that was Ukrainian. We're doing everything possible, everything in our power to help. It's tough. And some light news to end our week today. We bring you the first look at what's to come in Hollywood from the best in animation to the worst in golf. I'm going to show you how to draw Olaf. Captain Hook. Cusco from the Emperor's New Groove. Simba. Mirabelle from Encanto. We are going to learn how to draw the genie. Artists from Walt Disney Animation Studios show viewers how to make the magic in the new show, Sketchbook. In each of the six episodes, an artist teaches how to draw a character that either they helped create or inspired them to become an animation artist. Sketchbook premieres April 27th on Disney+. Please welcome on the team, Morris Flipcroft. Where is it? Oh, God. How does it feel to have shot the worst round in the history of the Open? That's hard to tell. It's the first round I've ever played. Here's your first look at Mark Rylance and Sally Hawkins in The Phantom of the Open, based on the true story of a man who entered the prestigious British Open despite never having played golf before, infuriating the sports elite and becoming a folk hero. The Phantom of the Open swings into U.S. theaters June 3rd. That's the latest from the NTD business team. Myself, Paul Graney, can still catch NTD Evening News with Stephanie Cox. That's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. You can also follow me on Twitter if you want to keep up to date over the weekend. For NTD Business, that's all for today. Have a great weekend. Thanks, as always, for watching. We'll see you Monday.